The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, thank you. That was wonderful and a little overwhelming, those first statistics that you showed from around the world. And, and in fact, I'll sort of reinforce your comment about uh, building cities in China. We had a woman that was visiting campus a few months ago, had a daughter that went through our undergraduate college, and she was talking to us about the city she was building in China. And it wasn't like it was the government building the city. She was building the city and had interest in educational kinds of opportunities. So it's amazing what's happening. Well, we've actually there. crafted, I mean, cities are a good one. So we have a smart and connected cities group inside of the business now where, you know, we can bring safety and security. We can build building automation. We can do utility management. We can do power grid management. We sell that as a solution. You can buy up and down the pyramid any way you want. It was a business we weren't even in three or four years ago. And it's a, it's a potential huge business for us. We've signed the first couple of deals. We've got, one in, we've got two in China. We have one in Korea. We have a deal here in the U.S. Where do we even do something with the city of San Francisco I'm around uh, connecting buses, believe it or not, to the Internet. Um, so it's, it's really shaped how we go to market mm -hmm. today. Well, let's open the floor up to the audience. What questions do you have for Randy uh, related to the things he talked about or anything, anything else, you else you'd like to talk about? Yes, we'll start here. So it's, it's both. So there is formal training. We generally do it by cohort, and then the cohort sort of stays together. So they've got a body that they can use amongst themselves. That we've discovered the cohort actually sustains itself. But there, are, there is a set of training that maps back to the seat lead model that's immersive, that we use them in a cross-functional environment, and then we have someone sitting in the room who's a facilitator and an inspector who sort of guides them through the process. Back here, you had a question. Hey, Randy, I had a question. Uh, Cisco was one of the first organizations to start the global lead campaign. Uh, what sort of metrics did you put in place to assess the successfulness? Uh, did, have your R&D centered there? What's the number of patents coming out from your R&D center? Any other measures? Sure. Um, so, Kendra's always best here. We opened Bangalore as a low-cost engineering site 10 years ago, I would say, 11 years ago maybe. Um, and we, we had a bunch of job shop sort of setups over there where most of the employees, there were groups of three to five, maybe 10 would work for somebody back in the US. Um, about three years ago, one of my peers actually moved to Bangalore, Wim Elfrink, and he runs the services business for us. And Wim really put an entirely different skin around Bangalore, and we, that's when we, we coined the phrase, the the global side of the East. And we've grown that site from less than 1,000 people, to maybe 2,000 people, to about 8,000 a day. And we're building an infrastructure out to have 12 to 15,000 there. And I would say today, there's sort of three batches of work that's going on in India. There's development work that's still 75 to 80% job shop, where we're offloading work from the US to do subsets of a major design. There's a there's been a big influx of moving the new practices around services, so smart and connected city, education, healthcare, all around the Bangalore. Then the third work is work that we've moved from the US over there 
that is in other areas in the business, like finance, customer service, IT, that we run a specific silo inside of the function completely out of India. In the last year, for the very first time, to my earlier comment about trying to localize products for local consumption, we now have a team in India of about 100 engineers who are developing products specifically for India and China. We have a similar team in China today. Um, the patent flow has been good. The end of, we actually have an innovation um, how would you, a fair where the employees actually come in and pitch their ideas. So we've got some great ideas out of that group. Um, and we reward them. They, they get a small bonus if they get picked to something we take. Um, it's, it's a model that I think is still evolving. We're still massively US-centric, and this is a problem, and we recognize it as a problem. We're still exporting most of our leadership team. So if I look at all the senior leaders in Bangalore, most of them are from the US. Um, the leadership team in China, most are from the US. So we, have not, we now have a model where we're inserting local leaders. We're actually hiring out of colleges, bringing kids over here, putting them through a program, then sending them back so we can export the culture back um, with, the, with their native language. Um, but that's going to be a decade, I think, getting done. What else? Yes, the back. You know, I, w I don't. I would say no in general. Um, you know, we're the largest employer um, out of Santa Clara by far. I, I forget the number. I think I have 2,200 Santa Clara undergraduate or graduate kids working in Cisco somewhere. Um, we hire a lot of engineers um, out of Stanford um, on the more theoretical side. We get a lot of kids out of the, the UC program in the state. We also import a lot of kids. Kids want to come to California. So we recruited Michigan, Duke, um, Jesus, Georgetown, um, Ohio State, Wisconsin. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's an issue of getting, we're not, we currently are not constrained by resources today. I think that's true. Um, the funny part is we're actually having more trouble finding resources. Well, you go back to the Bangalore example. So individual contributors in India, not a problem. When you get to the director level or above, they're at parity with salaries in the U.S. today, and they're very hard to move. So we're having a very difficult time finding local leadership to bring into the business. That's my single largest problem, is getting local leadership in countries like China and India that get over the bar with us who aren't so out price, priced out of the market for us to get to today. And we hire about between 500 and 1,500 college kids a year worldwide. Well, so, you know, we don't, the U.S. government's stimulus process is entirely different than it is in some of the developing countries because they don't, you know, let's just use green as an example. So, you know, if you look at the money that Europe and China has poured into solar and wind versus what the investment's been in the U.S., we're falling behind. Um, and, you know, there's a big move in California to try to reinvigorate that, but it's been different. Now, they couldn't pick a worse economic time to try to get money to invest. Now, but the, the VCs are doing it, but the, I think the government has to play a role. 
both at the state and the federal level, because even to move to green power, you've got to subsidize the power. Fundamentally, the kilowatts are more expensive. I'm sorry, it's a fact of life. And because of regulation in our state specifically, you can't even pass it on to the blasted consumer. So you end up with a squeeze in the middle. So I think some regulation and stimulus around some new opportunities, we'll use green as one of those examples, I think would be good. Um, I also don't think we've done enough to retrain in the U.S. And I think that has to be a governmental role. We're doing some work in uh, Michigan right now because they've got so many auto workers that have been laid off where we're retraining them to do medical um, transcription work, medical services work, call center work, because there's thousands of people that are sort of stranded in and around the Detroit area and there's other cities in Michigan where they just didn't have anything to do. So we have to retrain them to put them to work. And I think that money has been hard to come by. And again, I know it's a tough economics times, but it's a fact of life. And unfortunately, our tax policy is not very good. I mean. There's, I don't know if you guys have read about it, but we know Cisco's proposed this repatriation of cash. Um, we the, 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 in the U.S., there are 100 multinational companies that have a trillion dollars worth of cash stuck overseas. It's a fact of life. We earned it overseas. We pay tax on it overseas. But under current tax policy in the U.S., if you bring it back, you've got to pay tax again. So we're a net borrower in the U.S., and I got $40 billion stuck overseas. So we proposed the administration, bring that tax, bring the money back Taxes at a dramatic lower rate make us invest it. So tie the effective tax rate they charge repatriated earnings either to growth in spending in R&D or in hiring headcount in the U.S. We can't get a pass to save our souls. Um, it, that doesn't make it, it would, I mean, the potential stimulus to the market is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. We even offered to put money in the green. Take 5% of it and we'll make us invest it in green. Uh, we're, we're stuck. We're, we're stuck because of lack of bipartisan politics, but that's a different problem. So um, I think it's a problem with California, it's a problem with the U.S. right now. So I think there are things we could do. Um, I think wringing our hands and talking about protectionist practices is the wrong decision. Let me do a follow-up to that because this is kind of a public policy question. So how does Cisco approach public policy questions and what role is that play? Because I think oftentimes, and I'm not sure we do it very well in business schools either, is really help students understand how significant that linkage is and how important it is for businesses to be engaged in that process. Well, so we, um, the two things that has evolved at Cisco that I'm quite frankly pretty proud of is we have a great corporate social responsibility footprint and we've got a great government affairs footprint. So Cisco probably between the employees and the business, we give away hundreds of millions of dollars a year worldwide. And, and some of them are big and some of them are small, but there's lots of them. In the government affairs area, we've got a very smart group of people, both at the state and federal level, who sort of watch what goes on and creates for us a fabric that we can sort of play in. So my boss, who's a staunch Republican and was the McCain campaign guy for California, just backed Barbara Boxer, which completely confused people. Well, that isn't hard. Barbara Boxer has been great for tech and she's been great for patent reform. We care about both those things. So our pact gave her money. We have a pact. We, every executive donates to the pact and so do most of our employees. So we're active in policy when it benefits the business. Mm -hmm. And we try to influence. You know, we think in the absence of patent reform, we're going to be in trouble in the U.S. If anybody who worked for trolls, I'm sorry. But um, that's a painful process. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me that I can get sued in West Texas or East Texas on a patent that was bought in a bank foreclosure um, by somebody in New Hampshire who's never going to use the blasted thing but drags me over the coals. So the industry's spending hundreds of millions of dollars defending themselves on patents that we're the only ones actually using. And the trolls are buying them up by the hordes. And it's a, it's a massive business right now. Okay, that's just wrong. 
and there's no at revenue attribution. I mean, it just doesn't, the rules are just goofy. They were designed around farming. They don't apply to high tech. But again, that's one of those things we're trying to influence. We're working with the Senate right now saying, okay, we've got to do something. This is, this is anti-competitive for America. You're making it more expensive to be here. You're going to make us leave. So, um, you know, we were, in the good old days, um, when I got to Cisco, we had three products. Three, I swear to God. Um, and that, those were the good old days. We could do $700 million with three products. Um, the problem is that if you look at how technology is being delivered, it has pushed us to go from product to systems to solutions to architectures. So I can't sell somebody a router anymore. I've got to sell it in conjunction with an architecture where I can demonstrate to them either through mobility capabilities, security capabilities, co total cost of ownership, that my architecture is a better solution, which, is which, which pushed us from routing to switching to wireless to IP communications to video. The end device is an interesting play for us for two reasons. Video, which is why we bought um, the flip, and why the tablet is important, is because we're big believers in thin client. So we will do things to stimulate the network. It's a, it's a little bit the Intel model, I hate to admit this, but we fundamentally sell routers and switches, and we do a lot of things to sell more routers and switches. So we're interested in the endpoints because we want to drive more traffic on the network. If I drive more traffic on the network, I sell more routers and switches. It's not a very complicated model. We were interested in Flip because we wanted to make video ubiquitous in the marketplace. And we wanted people to share it and send files. Why? Because one video files were 10,000 emails. So, you know, it's, it's a little insidious, but it's true. Um, we're going to get into the home video market. We have a product we just announced called Yumi. We're going to sell a device that's on top of a high-definition TV where you can do video conferencing in your home. It's going to be about 600 bucks, 500 bucks at Best Buy. The service is $25 a month. Why? Because you want video to be the next voice. We think voice needs to translate to something. We think that something is video. You're going to get video on your cell phone in the next three years. Great for us. So we're, we're going to keep moving into spaces that we can IP enable and embed back into our systems, like, you know, like wireless and communications devices. And we're going to invest in areas where we can stimulate more network traffic. And we got into compute because we were getting marginalized in the data center. If you look at HP's platform, they give away the Ethernet ports on their compute platform. So we came at, from a set of I mean, compute down, we came network up. And our value in the compute space is I can provision network services and application services. They can't do that today. Yeah. Oh, and if any of you work for HP, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, you know, the, the, the number one skill that's really become apparent to us is the ability to collaborate, which is why I've been, we've been on a tear talking to schools about immersive learning programs, because um, we're big believers in immersive learning, because it makes kids work in teams early in their career. Because when you get into Cisco, you're going to be in a team in a heartbeat. I don't care what you do, you're going to have a team affiliation. 
And if you can't collaborate, you cannot succeed in our enterprise. It's just not possible. And then we're interested in hiring smart as opposed to hiring skilled. Now, that's a new behavior for us because, because we were a tech business and we were mostly engineers, we would hire specific skills. We've broken that model. So I'd much rather have a really bright kid with a degree in political science who I can train into a job than I would have the best engineer for that job or the best analyst for that job. And that's opened our eyes, quite frankly, to, to go after a different population of students than we would have in the past. My chief of staff has a degree in comparative English literature and Russian history. And she happened to go back and get an MBA. She didn't know anything about business, but she did consulting for a couple of years. But she's a magnificent collaborator um, inside of the enterprise. And she's gone from an individual contributor to a vice president in seven years, eight years. Well, I'm sure that piece of information is actually in inspiring to our students because we do tons of group projects and collaborative learning. So there's a reason we do that. So that's good. I appreciate you reinforcing that. <laughs> immersive learning is always good. I agree. So it's a great question. I was just on a, I was on the Accenture COO circle call this morning, and this subject came up as, because, you know, we've been, every business is looking at how they optimize themselves, and we've gone through the outsourcing and the process reengineering work, but now we're looking at the work we do and say, okay, why do I, why do, I do this work? And I'm going to use supply chain as a great example because I came out of that space. So at Cisco, for years, I would run an MRP, take the messages and send them out to my guys, who, my partners, who would run an MRP. And about seven years ago, one of the guys, why do we run an MRP? We don't build anything, really. We don't plan parts, really. Why don't we just use theirs? And we turned it off. And through a suite of collaboration processes and tools now, we're able to extend our manufacturing footprint into their factories. And I run on multiple ERPs now. I don't, MRPs, I don't really care. We're doing the same thing on the outbound partner side where we do things, I mean, I'll just use, I have customer service. So I ask the question, why do I book an order? Why am I in the order entry business? So why isn't that a service that exists at my partners? 89% of our business is sold through a reseller. I make him book an order, and if he goes through Disty, he books an order with Disty, who in turn books an order with me. Okay, that's just wrong. We should book that order one time, someplace in that chain, and then we'll take it off everybody's plate. So. I think we're collaborating in a lot of areas where we wouldn't have thought of it five years ago. We're moving to collaborative design templates where we're co-designing with non-Cisco entities in product development. We would have never thought of that five years ago. They're, they're actually both. It depends. In the product space, they're almost always an ODM or a, like, a, like a Foxconn or a Jable or one of the ODMs in Taiwan. On the solution side, we're actually co-developing solutions with partners who will ultimately use that as part of their solution. So the our car industry is the best example. So the, you know, we're designing um, connected cars with Ford and Chrysler. Well, that's, we have to co-design it because we don't understand the, how to design something into an automobile. And believe me, that's a very different process than giving them a box to put in that car. So we're learning a whole new set of skills. We're designing routers for space. I know this sounds nuts, but we have a program where we're actually doing technology that they can port into a satellite and take to space. Again, we don't know how to ruggedize a product. I don't know how to make it radiation proof. Um, so we don't do ion bombardment testing, but we have part, no, but you have to if you're going to put this thing in space. So in that case, we're partnering with a design firm in Colorado selected by the government to help us ruggedize our product to put into a satellite. 
so that the government can actually sell services on what used to be dedicated satellites when they aren't in use. It's good use your tax dollars. And they'll collaborate with the internal tools? They do. Um, we, have, we are setting up, um, so you know, the concept of B2B has sort of gone away. So we're, I'm going to use a word that, we, we try to widget, we try to identify what services we need to collaborate and we widgetize them. So we, make it, we put them in a format that lets them pull them into their environment and then use them and then connect back to us. So they don't even have to come to my site. They can actually do the work in their site and then bring it back to me. That way they can modify the widget in any way they want once they get it in their application space. So um, that's a hard question. You know, we probably file 300 to 700 patents a year. We probably got six or seven thousand in process. You know, that, that's already been through the process. Um, if you look at the the keys to our technology, most of the basic IP work we invented IP. So the Internet Protocol work goes back to Cisco. That's really the keys to the kingdom. But we just bought Tanberg, and we looked at. Um, we looked at Polycom and we looked at the company in Texas, I forget the name that got bought by the other local company. Um, and we bought Polycom for two reasons. Their patent portfolio was pretty phenomenal in video. And they had a specific patent around streaming different videos into the same environment that we knew we were going to need three to five years to get. So I would say today, well, and then we bought Scientific Atlanta and they had a massive patent portfolio because they're 55 years old. Um, I would say half of our patents are Cisco and half are been, been brought in through acquisition or developed in the post-acquisition space. Um, but if you say, where's the, where's the real core of Cisco's IP value? It's, it's our old technology. I'm going to take one more question from the audience back here. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> and you can elaborate a little on that. Yeah, there's, so there's sort of two issues. There's, there's business practices, and we have to deal with the reality of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and everything that goes with that. Um, and we've, you know, Cisco's a big company. I got 70,000 employees, and I was just back at the Department of Justice explaining a couple of faux pas in the Middle East. Um, so it's, this is a difficult conversation when you try to go big in the, what I would consider the fringe countries. Um, but we are. We are very, very crisp in terms of how we do business at Cisco, and we just walk, quite frankly. We, we've abandoned projects that were just, we knew it was going down a bad path. Um, we've dumped partners. As a matter of fact, I won't mention the country, but we just dumped a partner in a reasonably large country that turns out that one of the prime ministers actually owned, um, but wasn't obvious to us because he didn't show up in the ownership, but they were completely corrupt, and we shot him. Now we're in trouble with the government. So that's sort of the reality of doing business in those spaces. You know, we try to take the high road. In China, as an example, um, IP infringements, all of, my gray, all of my counterfeit comes from China. It's a fact of life. So we've spent seven years educating the national government and the major provinces in the South around IP enforcement. And we just won a case against a guy with the first time he got five and a half years. When we started, I swear to you, 
They slapped them on the wrist and then gave them back the counterfeit product. We're like, no, 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 you're missing the whole point of this conversation. So we're using, again, this government affairs and some of a handful of my guys who are educating countries like Vietnam, like Malaysia, like China on if you want to bring us there and you want us to do business there, then you've you got to put the IP enforcement. Um, so that's another area where we've just got a problem, but we're, we're learning together and it comes with the territory. We had one more hand up, so I'm going to let you ask your question before we conclude. So. That's a great question. So um, I've been trying to shrink this footprint for five years. Um, no, I'm being really candid. This is the most expensive place in the world to do business. I mean, honest to God, this is just the power is expensive, labor is expensive, the buildings are expensive. Um, it's congested. Homes are expensive. You've got to pay employees more here. Um, so this is an area where we've been working on it, and I, I just had this conversation with John and the team. We haven't been very successful. I think there are 22,000 people in San Jose now. Um, I think there was 16,000 when I said we weren't going to hire any more here. Um, so <laughs> the community think, appreciates yeah, you I don't very think, much yeah, for that. I don't think we'll shrink. I think we'll stop growing with abandon. Um, but to make that work, I've got to get the leadership team out of San Jose. So the example I used with Bangalore, Bangalore would have never taken off if I wouldn't have put Wim and his team over there. They've hired thousands of people. So that's work that would have been in the U.S., either here, or RTP, or Texas, or Boston, that moved to India. When we brought a leader into China, and when we bought WebEx, most WebEx's engineering was in China. That's now given us a big enough footprint that we can move more work there. The other point I'd make is we're still, half our business outside of the U.S., roughly half's in the U.S. But I would say today, 45, 50,000 of the 70,000 employees could still be in the U.S. It's a big number. It's a very big number. Um, and so as a global citizen, when I go into a country like China or Russia or Brazil, they say, listen, we're we want to do business with you, but you've got to bring jobs here. Um, and that's a reality. And I think we, as a corp good corporate citizen, have to step up to that. So we are doing it. We, we're setting up a, a, um, a financing business in Chengdu in China, in the Sichuan province, because we've done work there post-earthquake. Um, and we're going to put an engineering team there as well. We're going to put a, a manufacturing team and a small facility through one of my partners in uh, Chongqing, because we're going to do a several hundred million dollar deal building out that city. But as part of those deals, they want some jobs to go with it. That's going to put more and more pressure for us to not hire in the U.S. Well, we need to kind of wrap this up, but I want to conclude with one question. So you talked about a lot of opportunities, a lot of challenges. If you had to sort of pick what you see as the biggest challenge Cisco faces in the next five to ten years and the greatest opportunity, what would you say? You know, we're our own, well, like any big business, we're our own worst enemy most of the time. Um, we are, we have, somebody mentioned earlier, you know, we do a lot of things. Um, we're still learning the, 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 what I would call sort of the rudimentary skills of prioritization um, and funding models that work. Um, because we are, we are, we are, again, it's, we've got a lot of balls in the air right now. There are literally hundreds of projects. We have 32 priorities in our business at the executive level. I've been pitching, I swear to you, this is honestly got truth. Four years ago, I went into John's office and said, okay, John, I'm reading every good business book in the world. I went to Procter & Gamble. They said, we can't focus on more than four things. That year, we went from 16 to 22. We went from 22 to 32. He wants to get to 50. So I think what we have to do is, as a business, 
we have to be able to agilely assess, innovate, assess, and either reinvest or dump with more skill than we do today. Because we're going to be presented with lots of opportunities over the next decade or two. And if we don't inherently become more flexible and agile in terms of assessing those, funding those, stopping those, or really doubling down on them, we're going to struggle, I think, quite frankly, as a business. So it's our biggest opportunity and, quite frankly, our biggest risk. The second biggest risk I think we got is, is I'm, I'm actually concerned about our competition from China. Um, I think we've poo-pooed China too long. Um, and the Chinese government, there's some darling industries over there that are going to be, we're going to end up competing against them. They are spending billions and billions of dollars to come up the curve. Um, and they want to own these industries. Um, and I think we have to continue to out-innovate them. That has to be the long-term strategic mission because they're, they're massively fast followers. And honestly, they, I, won't, I don't want to say they copy everything, but they copy a lot. Um, and they do it quickly. I mean, they can re-engineer a product, reverse engineer a product in a heartbeat. So I think those two things are sort of what keep me up at night. And then from a leadership standpoint, I always worry about are we, are we creating the right batch of leaders to take over for us when we move on? I mean, we're, we've all been there a long time. We still run a lot on tribal knowledge and relationships. Are we creating enough structure so that the next leadership team doesn't need that to make the place go? And, that's all, and I've just shared this with the board. I'm, I'm, I'm just not certain. I don't know how you assess that effectively, but it does concern me. Well, thank you so much for your insights. It's been fascinating thank to you. hear from you this evening. Let's give him a hand. Thank you. I've got something for you before you step down. That's what I need right there. We have a Love small it. token of appreciation that, give, that has a lovely picture of our Malibu campus on it. It is a lovely place. We hope you will display. So I couldn't afford can. to go to school there when I went to school, <laughs> but it's a lovely place. Thank you Thank very much. Thank you so much. We Thanks. really appreciate it. And we have to draw for the gift certificate. All right. So this is for the Cordoval gift certificate. And I'm going to actually let Randy pick, so there's no appearance of a fixed deal here. Meebop? Meebop? Mayboob. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot yeah. your Is he even in the front yes, row? Yes, right Very there nice. on the front row. Congratulations. I think we've got the gift certificate right there. So, wonderful. Well, we appreciate so much you being here. I think it was a fabulous kickoff to our series this year. Our uh, our next event is actually going to be after the first of the year in Orange County, so we're going to hit the other end of our uh, geographic stretch here in California. We'll have Deborah Nelson with us, who will actually be joining us from up here. She's the Chief of Staff of Enterprise Sales, Marketing, and Strategy for Hewlett Packard. So uh, she wasn't here to hear your comments about Hewlett Packard tonight, and we won't repeat them to her when we see her, but we're looking forward to that. And thank you all so much for being here. I hope that uh, you thought this was a valuable experience. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.